Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast? It's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. In part two of our dialogue, Mampili Rampili moves to a global perspective, applying the lessons of overcoming apartheid to overcoming our contemporary global challenges. She talks about the importance of seeing ourselves as part of the web of life, of holding and applying our values in all aspects of our lives, and of recognizing that we are wired to care and be compassionate and need to live these values if we are to live fulfilling, contributory lives. Finally, she speaks to the necessity of finding narratives of hope that we can share in these troubled times. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, Peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Mampili, you're saying, uh, making a very important point that a a fully relational person, a, a caring, compassionate person, of necessity must have had some sort of inner growth and transformation, a spiritual awakening, or some. So, an, an empowerment that empowerment awakening for you came out sounds like came out of your your dialogue with a like-minded community from what you're saying well, how do you see you're saying there's the signs of a similar awakening in the younger generation now how is that happening how is it well it's it's a combination first of all let's and i'm speaking to people who know we as human beings are wired to be compassionate. We are wired to be respectful of ourselves because you cannot give from a place of emptiness. And that self-respect enables you to respect others. But there's another wiring which you pick up from kids say, it's not fair. We are wired for social justice. We cannot sit here and eat when somebody is sitting there and hung, is hungry. We are not, we are wired not to find that acceptable. And finally, we are wired to care, to be compassionate. And compassion for me is love in action, is a practical manifestation of that love that, again, is wired into us. There is something about human the human gaze, the human eyes, the human face. You cannot avert that. You cannot. Unless something in you is has died. And clearly you, you mentioned the, the importance and power of compassion. And you've just committed a significant part of your work and life to that being on the board of the Global Compassion Coalition. 
What moved you to, to focus so much on that? Well, I had long conversations with Rick Hansen because when he first sent me a note, in fact, I had visited a friend of mine in California and he sent her this note about his musings about setting up this uh, Global Compassion Coalition. I looked at it and my friend, Marguerite Callaway, said, Mpela, this sounds like you and Rick should meet. Well, we went and visited Rick. And I said to Rick, if this compassion coalition that you're talking about operates as a scientific coalition, totally ignorant of the wisdom of indigenous people, which for me, I don't have to join the Global Compassion Coalition, I told you. I was brought up in Ubuntu, which goes beyond just being compassionate. It is, it frames everything I do. And that is why when during the Black Consciousness Movement, it wasn't only the conversations, it was a reawakening of the wiring in us. It was a, a reconnection to the wisdom of our ancestors. And those ancestors are common to all humans. It is a question of how do you permit yourself to reconnect? If you plug in, it's wonderful. And so what we are doing in South Africa now with young people is to replug them into what they already know deep down in their hearts. If they go visit in the rural areas, people don't say that's wrong. They say, no, a person doesn't do that. To be human makes that doing that impossible. But they see negative examples of people who claim to be leaders who are stealing from old women, who are stealing from children. And that state capture is modeled on the original state capture, which is colonial conquest. You just rock up and you declare that this is your country. Really? That is massive state capture. Yeah, it, it seems that the two principles, maybe a starting place for this, is respect and dignity for all creatures, whether they're zebras or white people or black people or birds or, or all creatures. Our ancestors said the oceans were alive, you know, they had their own conscience. Respect and dignity, if that becomes how we we make our decisions and rule our lives from our center. And then the other things, the specific policies that we need to do are going to be, will be much wiser and much more doable because everyone involved will be treated with respect and dignity. And that is a world that you can begin to let go a little bit of your resistance and your fear of things being different, I think. Absolutely. Because what drives me at the age of 76 is the same thing that drove me at the age of 19, which is connecting the dots that if I'm human and I've been brought up with these values of Ubuntu, I cannot just sit here and recite them. I have to practice them in everything I do. So one of the decisions we took as young activists was the personal 
the professional and the political have to be governed by the same value system. So the mm. ethics of human dignity and respect and fairness and social justice cannot be put aside because you are making money. The way we conduct our professional lives or our businesses has to be framed by the same value system. When we do that, then we can have this well-being economics, this ecological civilizational approach to everything we do. Let's say that that your ideas are incredibly powerful, but when you speak, at least to me, there's a transmission of something that goes beyond words. And it must be the way that you've led your life and, and what you've dedicated your life to. But there's a very, very powerful thing going on here with me. And I just I just want to acknowledge that. And Heidi, our kind of honcho who keeps us in line for this podcast, she said, mentioned that we wanted to ask a question. And it's a good question. It's a two-part question. First of all, what really hurts you right now? What really hurts at this stage in your life and your stage and your struggle and your career and all that you've given your life to? And what feels good? What says there is hope things are actually changing for the better we're getting there maybe not as quick as we thought we, we should but but there's something going on so what hurts and what feels good what hurts is to see how we have given away a wonderful opportunity to become the country of dreams of so many generations it was there as Mandela said, it was in our hands. But we chose the short-termism of party politics over the true transformation of our society. So it hurts me to see that poverty has deepened. People are more desperate. It hurts me that the education system is worse than it was under apartheid in terms of the quality of it. It hurts me as a medical doctor to see how the hospitals have been decimated by thefts, neglect, the appointment of inappropriate leadership. It hurts to see old people living surrounded by sewage because our infrastructural investments have been redirected into the pockets of politically connected people. All of that hurts, hurts very deeply because I lost dear friends, including my beloved, to in the struggle to make this country the country that we could have been proud of. But I'll never give up because I live not just in hope. I can see and feel the hope in the eyes of young people, in the eyes of even old people, the old women who are keeping alive children whose parents are not able to look after them. 
those old women and men and many others are the people who keep me alive, knowing that, yes, it didn't happen when it was supposed to, but it will happen in the next five to 10 years. But true transformation to the level that we had hoped to be will take another decade or two. But that doesn't bother me. What encourages me is that the process of true transformation is underway. It's underway in small communities where people are doing things themselves. Towns that have been run down are being rebuilt by conservative farmers, young unemployed black kids, tannies and mummies who are bringing in flowers and flower beds. And it's incredible to see the human spirit at work. And I know, and I know for a fact, that all those small little flames of hope will coalesce, are coalescing. I'm also very hopeful because I see young people putting up their hands to say, we want to see a different type of politics, a politics that is focused on serving people as our the preamble of our constitution says, we the people will we commit to healing the wounds that are the ones that are stopping us from becoming who we truly can become. Those young people are determined. And my role, I'm just a 76-year-old support club cheerleader <laughs> and will be so until my maker calls me. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and you've been quite a cheerleader. And I actually, one of the books of yours that I've been reading is Conversations with My Sons and Daughters, in which you basically try to communicate uh, both the spirit that you're demonstrating here and the, the spirit of your life and the animation and ideals of your life. And, and there's also your autobiography, A Passion for Freedom in which basically you're, you're communicating this, this spirit to, to your readers and to, to future generations. And I, I'd, I'd love to hear you summarize as best one can. What, how, would, how would you distill the, the essence of the, the ideal that is, you've lived your life by? Clearly, you've had this ideal, this North Star, this, this pole that has been been the center and the core and the and the the calling for your life how would you how would you name that i would simply say i am living the ethics the principles and the compassion that's embedded in what it means to be human and I have tapped into my village education of Ubuntu. This is what it means to be human. And mm -hmm. if that philosophical orientation is allowed to infuse one's personal life, 
infuse one's professional life, infuse one's engagement with politics, would have no crime, no thug running for presidency. And if they do, they will be held to account. In the village, if you do something, no one runs around killing you or whatever. They just call you and make you sit down and account. What do you think you are doing? You cut down a tree without anybody agreeing that this is a tree to be cut for whatever reason? Account. So I, I am simply living the values of my ancestors. But I have the great fortune of having been educated and having been exposed to a wider worldview. And I can see that the world is hurting today because it has lost its way. It is not just South Africa that has lost its way. It's the world. The kind of global political economy we've got is responsible for the carnage we are witnessing in Ukraine, in Middle East, in much of the African continent. Because it's all about having, having more rather than being more and being a contributor to other people's beingness, their dignity, and their well-being. That's such a beautiful distinction, those last couple of sentences, the, the, the trap of wanting to have more instead of to be more. And the advertisers are so fond of telling us we can have it all, but what they don't <laughs> tell us is that having it all isn't enough. <laughs> yeah. and, and you can be very unhappy while you have an awful lot. And we in this country, with a, we have a, a so-called banana republic with enormous, enormously inequality, unequal distribution of wealth. But you know, the privilege of of working with even treating some people with great wealth and seeing that yeah, it can be associated with deep pain and pathology and lack, etc. You live out of a very positive view of human nature. And yet one of the great challenges is that for many people, perhaps the majority of people, the view of human nature, which is prevalent in the world today, is kind of a very shallow one, a derived in part from science. Science For some people, we're just you know, the result of random selection of genes. We, there's, no, there's no community or forbear transmission of a deeper view of human nature, of our possibilities, let alone a spiritual view. There's, in part, there's a clash of understanding of what it is to be human. Yeah. Well, it is also choice. Because if you choose to live up to who we are wired to be, you are assuming responsibility, not just for yourself, but for others, your family, your community, wider society, and the entire web of life. Yeah. And so it isn't as if I'm privileged to be able to tap into my ancestral roots. 
I choose to do so. Okay. And all of you are Africans at the core. That's right. But we killed off your African ancestral roots because they are inconvenient. You wouldn't have been able to enslave those African people whom you took from across the Atlantic if you recognize them as part of your family. And so you've got to come to grips with the need to acknowledge that it isn't that people like me are kind of special. No, people like me are fortunate to have been at the right place at the right time to get the reinforcement. But you did the you did the right thing also. You could have been in the right place at the right time and not done what you did. So you, you get some credit there for being brave and, and being honest and 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 being an agent of, of transformation. It's a big deal. Absolutely. But I believe that the fact that we were born at the time that we were helped a great deal. That there was a global movement, anti-establishment movement, that helped us to reframe who we could become. Unfortunately, those who were in exile were too absorbed in the establishments they wanted to be party to. They didn't see it. They didn't relate it to their own circumstances. Those of us who were inside the country had no choice but to do so because it was hurting to be told that you are a non-white, you're a non-European, and to be kicked in the butt. Mampila, I'm another, another kind of a more personal question, but let me just say over the last couple of years, I've been going through a very dark period in my life. You know, I've never talked about it on the podcast, but deep existential pain and darkness. And, and uh, I'm very empath- empathic, and, uh, and that can be a blessing or a curse. But it was really bringing me down. And in the last, I don't know, six weeks or so, it's it's kind of been lifting. And and talking to you is a big deal, too, because I'm getting a lot of hope. I mean, you're 10 years older than me, and you're right there. You're right there in that transformational zone where where I want to live my life. Is there a practice that you do personally to keep you from being overwhelmed by all the all the negatives and all the pain and all the suffering that we're confronted with? And if so, is there a, a practice that a general generally a, a, a practice that you would recommend for others or young people? How do you how do you stay centered? How do you stay on the mark? How do you stay being becoming what you're meant to be and not just getting a bunch of stuff, you know, that you want? How do you how do you do that? Well, talking of being overwhelmed, I was overwhelmed when Steve was murdered in 1977. But how I dealt with that loss is to immerse myself physically in work. So by the time I finished work, I just collapsed and slept. But that was okay for as long as I was in that pressure cooker. When I was released from the burning order and I came to Cape Town, now I had, I couldn't immerse myself. I still had this problem that every year for 10 years, I would relive Steve's death every September. 
And I was helped by Desmond Tutu, who referred me to the then retired dean of St. George's Cathedral, the Anglican Church. And he was a tall, wonderful Welshman. And he listened to me for, I think, almost a year or so we went through this and I would just relapse. He just one day lost it and said, look, what you are doing is not good for you, nor for Steve, nor for your children. And then he says, let me tell you my story. So he told me his story. He was engaged to be married to a woman who was one of the few people who were killed in the London bombing towards the end of the Second World War. He was in South Africa because he was sent here because he was inconsolable. And so, in a sense, he that kind of got me to catch a wake-up. And he said, you are, you are disappointing, Steve, in the way you are behaving because this is not honoring your relationship. And that cured me. So you talk of practice. Yes, it cured me, but you, when things happen that undermine your source of hope, like when Mandela, after his release, started speaking the language of the 50s and I could see that we were going off track. I went into what I didn't know at the time, but it was a major depression. And so, again, Father Ted King recommended that I go and stay in Simonstown in the house of my friends, the house on the waterfront near the Simonstown naval base. And this is where I learned, now it's a long way to your question, what practice? He taught me that, Mampila, just stand here on the veranda and look at the sea. It's moving in and out. It, the tide comes in and out. It's got nothing to do with you. And it will continue to do so whether you are there or not. And just remember this that you are but a little atom in a wide expanse of creation. And yet, you are cared for. And if you can make it a practice to wake up and give thanks for the gift of sleep, comforts, and all of those, and then admire these gifts, which I have the good fortune of being able to do here in my house in Kems Bay. Every morning when I open the curtains, I can see the wonders of creation and I give thanks. And then to give thanks at the end of the day, because I have a pretty good health status. At 76, I really do. So I have to give thanks for that. But importantly, is to be alive to being connected to others. Not just your family to care about your community and not just your community, but everybody, including 
other living beings. Yeah, and the definition of depression could be disconnection. If there yes. were one, that could be it. And Mampila, I just want to emphasize some of the things you said because there was several very powerful stories there. I'm just trying to distill some of the some of the elements of what was so transformative for you. And one clearly was wise friends. Having the company of wise friends, elders, really made a difference. Another was being reconnected with nature and also a sense of one's, both one's relative insignificance in the big picture and yet having the responsibility of choosing. And the practice of gratitude, so simple, so powerful. I, I resonate. I, it sounds like we both have this practice in common. I try to make the first thought of the day, thank you for. And then yeah. it's a long list. So sometimes it takes me a while to get out of bed because <laughs> I have a very fortunate life. But, <laughs> but I feel better when I get out of bed. And then connection, the recognition of one's connection to others. And uh, those are so, so four things stood out for me as uh, very powerful practices and recognitions that really are, can be so healing and transformative and empowering for all of us. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so beautiful. So beautiful. Mm, it resonates so much. Oh, let's see. You've perhaps in a way you've got, you've you've answered this question. I'd want to ask what enabled you to you know you've you've been exposed to so much suffering and injustice, both personally and in your society and, and your work. I'd wanted to ask how you managed to keep uh, keep faith in human nature. But I think in one way you've answered that in terms of your your view of human nature. Would that be right? Yes, and also the practical ways in which people I didn't know would reach out to me. My science teacher, for example, when I was finishing high school and my father was dying of cancer of the throat, he just reached out to me, loved the fact that I was good in science and he said, if you get an A, I'm going to give you some pocket money. And that incidentally, that pocket money was the only money I had because my mother mm. was a primary school teacher and didn't have money. So the suffering, yes, but it's not only gratitude, but it's recognition that there are so many angels who've walked across my path. He was one. And because I was a rural bumpkin, I didn't know that to go to medical school, you have to apply early in the year before. I tried to apply in, in October, too late. And he said, okay, not worry, do pre-medical courses. Because coming from a family of people who have never been to university, I didn't have an uncle or an aunt who could advise me. And this man, who was a member of the National Party, incidentally, but had this heart of gold and helped me to do pre-meds and then ended up at, at medical school. And then I get to medical school. Lots of strangers just say, okay, well, you do you have a bursary? No, I didn't know where to apply for bursary. Okay, here are the things that are possible given your 
uh, I was a top student in my trip that year. Here are the things that are available. So, yes, suffering plenty, but blessings plenty too. And that's what mm-hmm. keeps one. One has to keep one's eye on both sides, not just the crying, which I do, but also the gratitude and the joy. I really feel that I, I've i seen the worst of life, but also the best of life. And I keep the faith that the wrongs that are causing so much suffering cannot be sustained without people standing up and doing something to bring about a different future. And that I can see in small places, but as Margaret Mead says, never underestimate what a small group of people can do to change the world. And indeed, it is the only thing that ever has changed the world. I'm a witness of that in my life. And I think we all, if we cast our mind's eye around us, will see that little thing add up. Yeah, your life, clearly the fact that a group of you, a couple of dozen at university, had this recognition and and managed to make some changes happen, which then spread so dramatically. I and mean, it's a wonderful example of Margaret Mead's <laughs> advice. It's just beautiful, just beautiful. I mean, I've been quoting that for years, but I've never had had so personal a, a story of it. So thank you, thank you so much. Your emphasis, uh, looking looking across your. Your life, it seems like the emphasis of your work has shifted in the last decade or more, more to the global situation. And I wonder if you could speak to that, because you've been a managing director of the the World Bank. You're now co-president of the Club of Rome, which is we so many of us associate with a deep concern for the global situation. And you're now on the board of the Global Compassion Coalition, all world-spanning organizations and influences. So love to have you speak to that about this kind of transformation, both of your your perspective and and, and focus and, and goals here. Yes, it is about recognition that whatever we do in South Africa, in Africa, is impacted by what happens in the world. But at my age, there is very little I can do in practical terms inside the country because of the hostility of those whose values are at variance with my values. I do not fight them, but I do now and again criticize in ways that they cannot say is disrespectful and it is based on facts. And so instead of channeling my energies to critiquing a system which is dying anyway, self-destructing, I'm channeling my energies to areas where I can make a difference. And the Club of Rome is, I mean, the very name is itself needing transformation, but that's history. And 
although I felt uncomfortable at some stage, but I've embraced that. That's what we have. And when you think about Aurelio Pichet, he was a man way ahead of us this time in understanding that without the self-liberation of the humans within us, the spirits within us, no real transformation will take place. Because he had sold millions of copies of The Limits to Growth, and there was very little that changed in terms of policy making and structures, structural system of global economics. And so I can make a difference there, not only in taking that work forward, but as an African woman with my background, I can challenge, which I do, my colleagues on, at the Club of Rome who thought that there is one universal view of life. No, thank you. Mm. There are views out there. And the idea that Europe must lead, why? It is the enlightenment and the industrial revolution that led to this global capture by Europe and later America. So we have to admit to recognizing the contributions of other worldviews. And we know today that the remaining ecosystems that are still sustainable are sustained by indigenous people because they have the science, they understand that we are part of the broader ecosystem and the web of life. And it's not like, you know, I love my panda business. It is life is about being part of an inextricably linked system. And so I have learned a lot from my colleagues at the Club of Rome, but I also believe that they've learned something from me. But importantly, I'm also modeling to young people in Africa that you don't have to be part of international institutions to follow them. You have a very rich heritage as Africans, to share that so that we can have a different value system governing this beautiful, complex world we live in. Yeah, and I, I want to, there's so much in what you've said, Mampila, and I just want to draw out a couple of things there. One is the, one is you're addressing some of the great issues of our, our time. Of course, there are the global threats to ecology and sustainability and even to maintaining our civilization. But you're also bringing attention to the fact that we're in a time when we really have multiple cultures meeting and needing to both learn to live with and learn from each other in ways we've never had before. And you're also pointing, you also emphasize the radical interconnection and interdependence, which is both part of life, but now an inextricable part of our very survival and well-being as a, as a species, a culture, a civilization. So I just want to, I just want to emphasize what you're saying and, and also the absolute necessity for managing the great challenges and crises of our time, of which there are so many. 
before we go, is there anything you'd like to, anything further you'd like to say? Any other points or things you'd like to emphasize for, for what is our global community? I think before we began our tech whiz, Vanessa said we are now reaching people in 160 countries. So is there anything else you'd like to say? Yes, my final words are about gratitude for this program. I think it's very important. We still live in little atomized worlds of our own. We need to recognize that we are one human family with one earth. Second, I would like to encourage people to pay attention to not talking about Europe, America, and the rest of the world. It's Europe, America, and most of the world. <laughs> okay. The more people learn about what happens in most of the world, the different cultures, the different worldviews, the better. As an indigenous leader in Australia said to one of our colleagues who wrote a book on natural intelligence as something that we need to build innovation on natural intelligence, this leader said to her that for us to harvest the lessons of nature, we have to become indigenous again. Mm -hmm. Because then we'll be open our, our souls and our minds and our spirits to the great wisdoms of all the ages. And finally, I would like to recommend to your readers to visit the Club of Rome and get a paper called New Narratives of Hope. Beautiful. Which is about the wisdom of Africa as not just the cradle of humanity, but the cradle of the first human civilization is worth revisiting. And it is your heritage as well. Embrace it. Beautiful, Mampila. Thank you. Um, I will plan to get that. We will put that, that article and link in our resources. We'll make that available. And uh, it's beautifully synchronous that on the very day we are recording this, we are also uploading uh, an interview with the with a remarkable Abor Australian Aboriginal by the name of Tyson Yucca Porter, Porter, whose book Sand Talk is uh, is amazing. So, Mampila, it's such a gift to have be able to dialogue with you. It's a privilege to be able to get your ideas out into the world. I am filled. I'm deeply touched by who you are and all you do and the ideals which empower you and through you so many of us in so many countries you're a gift to us all and i'm deeply deeply grateful and i think tonight i will be including you in my list of gratitudes so thank you so much thank you thank you john and thank you all for arranging this and mampila if if this were a hall i'd be standing in my chair clapping and and hollering so thank god we're not doing that but but thank you so so much I'm blessed on so many levels by this conversation and this, this sharing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And see you next time. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to 
find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation Team.